Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, an exceptional new coffee company that blends the best of what is old with the best of what is new, using cutting-edge technology to preserve and deliver specialty coffee in its purest, most original form. Cometeer is the perfect metaphor for how tradition and modernity might elevate one another. I'm here today with Professor Zina Hitz, a philosopher, classicist, public intellectual, an advocate for the hidden life of the mind, author of The Wonderful Lost in Thought, and the founder of The Catherine Project. In addition, she is one of the most inspiring and heartfelt thinkers I know. Welcome, Zina. Thanks so much, Sohar, and uh, thanks for the lovely introduction. I know that one of the things that drives you is a fear of inauthenticity. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what authenticity means and how you define it maybe in relationship to the history of this term. It's, to me, it has a very existentialist feeling. You know, I, I don't think I can situate it in the history of ideas. Um, I would ask you to do that. Uh, what I can say is a bit about what it, what it means to me personally, um, which is to, roughly speaking, to speak in a way that's in touch with realities of my experience um, and my learning, uh, and that is in some way not just not just moving a puzzle piece in a preordained conversation. So I think a lot, it, for me, it's really a largely negative term. There's in academic conversations and in um, conversations in the media, there's a, there's a sort of set conversation and a set kind of intervention. And uh, I don't think that, I, th I think that we, real thinking involves interacting freely and creatively with those, with those uh, preset invitations. So I, I, I'm afraid I can't, it's, it's, yeah, I can't situate it philosophically, but you could try to help me out if you'd like, I'd be grateful. I guess the reason I start with this question is because I also resonate with the idea of wanting to structure a life in avoidance of the inauthentic as much as possible. But having spent over a decade on Heidegger's thought, who really I think popularized the term authenticity for me. He he thinks that you can't really be authentic or inauthentic. These are just structures of life. So it, it's an error to describe someone as more authentic than someone else. It's more the it's more like authenticity happens in a moment of epiphany where you all of a sudden, in in his analysis kind of realize the meaning of your life in relationship to its finitude or mortality. But when you're riding the subway or, you know, thinking about your day, you're just inherently inauthentic. And, you know, may, some people have tried to say, oh, well, if I practice mindfulness, I can maybe have more epiphanic moments. But sort of inauthenticity and authenticity are just part of life, the ebbs and flows, and there's no meaning to having authenticity as a goal. So I... I'm tempted to put this in terms of um, what I call in Lost in Thought the virtue of seriousness, uh, where because I, I and I, I I recognize and I've always known about myself um, 
my approach is uh, in some sense naive. And at this point in my life, it's deliberately naive. So I haven't, um, you know, my life is short. I spend a lot of time on classical philosophy and then I got involved in this liberal education promotion project. And uh, I never have had the time to work through the metaphysical problems of the modern era. <laughs> so so I, I just uh, do what I can and wing it. Um, but I think the virtue of seriousness helps here because what I think is that it's possible for us, not as necessarily a matter of habit and effort and accomplishment, but through a kind of movement of the will or movement of the heart, to continually try to break out of the um, the kind of imprisoning structures of uh, social life, uh, of the world of competition. Um, and it's, it's not, I think I agree with your account of Heidegger in that it's epiphanic in some sense in that we can't, we never sort of take a pill and have the guarantee of um, ever after authenticity, but we can continually recommit ourselves to um, reaching beyond what's, what's uh, the easy, the comfortable, the automatic, and um, trying to really get in touch with the reality of what's going on, to be creative, to be receptive. Um, and uh, I'm fine if, if that requires some kind of elaborate transcendental metaphysics, I'm fine with that. I mean, I believe in God. So um, I, don't, I don't know whether it requires it or not, but I, I don't mind if it does. Uh, I'm not, I'm not um, and it may be, a, again, an intellectual fault of mine, but I've never been tortured by the prospect that um, all of my metaphysics might be uh, a, a, a colossal play on the interior theater of the human mind. Uh, and I've struck. I, I struggle with modern authors for that reason. I, I don't really quite understand why they're so persuaded that this has to be true. One of the criticisms of Heidegger that I often come across is, um, in part because of his own politics, uh, but maybe it would it would be there regardless, which is a kind of amorality to authenticity. So it doesn't matter whether you're marching at a Hiller Youth Rally or whether you're surfing or whatever it is that you're doing, reading philosophy, as long as it's for its own sake or as long as you make this decision with commitment, you're authentic. And so there's nothing outside of that to kind of determine the content or substance of the authentic choice, just that a formalism to it. How do you how do you think about the value of doing things for its own sake, sort of in the abstract versus choosing the right things to do for their own sake? Yeah, that's a fabulous question. And I'm reminded of um, the recent Heideggerian book by Dreyfus and Kelly um, on where you might have a moment of transcendence at a sports event. You know, you you reach out, you're taken out of yourself. Um, and uh, I don't want to be stereotypically anti-sports, but I think there's I think there's something wrong with that point of view. Um, and I think it's a hard, it's something that, it's one of the questions that kind of haunts Lost in Thought and one of the reasons why it's in a way a bit of a open-ended book, not a complete book, 
because I'm struggling with both of those constraints at once. On the one hand, I think things need to be done for their own sake. Uh, on the other hand, I think that for its own sake is really a kind of a, a, a sleight of hand, a shorthand for something that needs more development. And it doesn't just mean um, a wonderful moment, creating wonderful moments. It means developing as a human being. So when you do something for its own sake, you do something to develop. So I'm committed to thinking that there's some kind of directionality in our, um, our best interactions. That is, we make progress, we grow, we develop. Um, and I use that directionality rather than endpoints because it's my impression that we don't really necessarily know what the norms are that are guiding our development or our growth. But we, we recognize it when we see it in ourselves or in others. So I think I can recognize in my students when they grow or develop. Uh, I think I can recognize that in myself. So that's the, that's the kind of difference I have from, and I, I, I think that, I don't know, I don't wanna talk about Heidegger too much because I, I have such a, um, a visceral and uh, sentimental and, irris and intellectually irresponsible negative reaction to him. Uh, that I think if I were to talk about it too much, I would get embarrassed. But I, I do feel like there's a, there's, a, there's a showiness to Heidegger's thinking. There's a way in which he's always playing to a crowd, and it shows. And it's part of the sinister aspects of his thought. Um, you know, I, I read last year the introduction to metaphysics. I was shocked at how uh, overtly crowd-pleasing to the 1930s uh, German audience it was. Do you think the same criticism could be leveled at, say, someone like Hannah Arendt in terms of the crowd-pleasing nature? Um, or how do you think of the, the difference between, let's say, Heidegger and some of his students who at once were influenced by his thought but also tried to distance themselves from the anti-democratic or illiberal tendencies? So art is the one I know the least. So the people I know, and in a way I know not less from their writings than from being associated with their institutions for my whole life is Strauss and Klein. Um, Arendt does also seem to me to be a bit showy, to be honest. Uh, that's my impression of her. It's one of the reasons why I've had trouble getting into her work. Um, there's a sense in which I get the sense she's writing for the New Yorker, which she often did, writing within a certain social class um, to create a certain kind of impression. And I, I don't, I, I don't want to be committed to that as a final judgment on her work. I don't know it well enough. But Strauss and Klein, I think, uh, were both seeking to recover uh, some kind of authentic, what I would call humanism from Heidegger's thinking. Um, and to, to take away from it um, the sense that the autopilot of human thinking and feeling needs to be disrupted, needs to be interrupted. We need to get underneath our automatic opinions, underneath our uh, reflexes in order to do real thinking. Um, and that's influenced me so, I mean, it's not even from reading that's influenced me. That's sort of built into me from my, my training from a 17-year-old 
that that's basic to intellectual life to to get underneath the automatic. Um, and I, I that that might be really fundamental to what I think authenticity is. Wonderful, thank you. So, um, one of the ideas that sometimes haunts me is a sentiment from George Steiner that the humanities don't humanize. Sort of for him, the the problem of the Holocaust isn't why did God let this happen, but in a sense, how could the Western tradition not only have allowed this to happen, but in in perhaps some sense even directed us, or at least one aspect of it, to to Auschwitz. And and his example is something to the effect of, you know, one could hear the trains taking Jews away um, from the concert hall where one was enjoying Schubert. And I I don't think about that every day, but I wonder how you as a humanist would respond to the sort of concern that enjoying great ideas or great texts for their own sake or even not for their own sake just isn't enough to stop to stop us from becoming complicit in evil. Right. So that's a it's something that um also haunts me. Uh and I'm I'm thrilled to, that you bring up Steiner because I have just been discovering again recently how he's just the best thinker <laughs> for 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 the kinds of problems I'm interested in and and for our current moment and so on, um, and I, I think so underrated and so in need of a, a major um, renaissance. Uh, so, you know, I so in I think in my book I talk about not the Holocaust because it's it's a bit too familiar, but the the moment when I realized that. Um, all of all of these incredible German scientists at the opening of the First World War just went like on a dime without thinking about it on a reflex to work for the German war effort uh, to to manufacture mustard gas and uh, you know signing huge petitions in the newspaper supporting the Germans' war effort um, and I you know there's a part of me that wants to. Um, do some kind of analysis of German culture at the turn of the century, as there have been so many analyses, you know, trying to understand these things in terms of its uh, authoritarianism, its um, the sense of hierarchy in German academia and, and the, the overwhelming Kantian sense of duty and the toxic cocktail that all of these put together. Part of me wants to do that, but I, I also think that there just isn't a guarantee. Um, we, we don't, I don't think, this is something that I've also been thinking about more or less my whole life. I don't think we're in control of our moral condition. There's nothing. There's no set of activities. There's no set of practices which is going to somehow uh, get us into a condition of, of moral invul invulnerability. Our morality is our moral condition is very important. I'm very I I'm a, some kind of a moral realist. I think it's very important. I think it accrues to individuals largely, but I also think that it's really hardly under our control. And um, so I I that doesn't mean that there's nothing you can do. I think that the human goods, learning, you know, time with nature, family, all of these things. I think the human goods do help, but they can't guarantee it. I'm, I'm, I think that's very important to me in my thinking. Yeah, is the lack of guarantee something that 
leads you to faith or is is it an argument for faith or grace or something of the sort of otherworldly as a way of dealing with this problem? Uh, it is my my view in the end that, um, yeah, only God can um, ensure our righteousness. So it has to be a matter of grace. Um, I don't know that that's a reason for faith. It's it it might be more like a, a motivation, and maybe those aren't so different. I mean, I, I I spent a little time with Thomas Aquinas. I know he thinks that the impulse of faith is the the um, the desire for God as good. <laughs> so. Um, I think that one of the main crucial ways in which God is good for human beings is uh, the grace of righteousness, the grace of doing the right thing. Um, and it's true that that is also something which I think a believer can experience. Um, that is, with sufficient self-knowledge, uh, self-reflection, um, and when it grows over time, one sees one's own fragility, viciousness, weakness, and it becomes to see it comes to seem almost miraculous that one isn't a much much worse person. Uh, so I, that's certainly part of my faith as experienced. You know, I think, wow, wouldn't it have taken much for me to be putting my own people into the ovens? You know, back in back in the forties. So, uh, so I, that it is a part of my faith life, but I don't know whether it's a, an argument for faith. It's something different. Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Kamatir, my favorite coffee, not just for its exceptional taste, but for its unique aesthetic. Kamatir comes straight to your door as ice cubes, which you can then melt in hot water and have immediately as a hot cup of coffee. It tastes even fresher than if a cup were made for you at your local coffee shop. I highly recommend getting a box. Use the link cometeer.com slash Zohar to get $20 off your first order. You are an intellectual, obviously. You're also somebody who writes about and talks about belief and what one might call spirituality, um, though the term obviously has a lot of baggage. And I also feel myself to be someone drawn to intellectual life, but also someone for whom the word intellectual is not really adequate to describe my my project. Uh, and I sometimes use the phrase soulful intellect to describe what I'm trying to do. But I find a lot of resonance with you as, a, as an intellectual and a kind of spiritual seeker. And I'm just wondering, as somebody who teaches and teaches at a university, how you think about the life of the mind as it relates to the life of the spirit or sort of the life of the heart, the life of something that traditionally, when we think of academia, doesn't always come to mind. Right. Uh, I suppose I there's a lot I could say about this because <laughs> it's a kind of a sort of fundamental to my way of living in the world and seeing the way I live in the world. One thing I'd want to say just to connect with what I was saying earlier, 
um, I think learning is a, a human good. And I think all of the human goods are, and this is a sense in which I'm very traditionally Catholic, all of the human goods uh, point us to God in some way, point us to spiritual life. They're not necessary. I mean, they are necessary. They may not be necessary or sufficient. Actually, I, I don't know that they are. Um, you can you can live a life of pretty severe suffering and find your way to God, and you can um, have all these good things and and just not not make the make the jump, um, not follow the invitation. Um, but I do think that, and this was part of my own experience, um, was being exp- being in an environment like the one I teach in at St. John's, which is a, um, a, a very serious environment intellectually, an environment where books are understood as, take it, it's taken for granted that they're guides for life in some way. They're not just things that we study from a distance. And also a, a small community, a, a caring community. Being in that environment helped me to relax sufficiently um, to be at ease in the world, to drop some fear and to, um, to that, that allowed me to be open to becoming a religious person. Um, and, uh, so that's really a part of my experience. It's also something Dorothy Day talks about in her autobiography, a phase in her life when just life was so beautiful and rich and full of goodness that she felt drawn to, drawn into an invitation to, to look for the source of that goodness. Uh, so I think that that's one thing to say. Uh, the other thing to say is that, uh, this is part of what I try to communicate in the book, that um, the disciplines of intellectual life properly understood are, are both moral and spiritual disciplines. They're, they're not sufficient for it. You can be a good person and you can be um, close to God without being much of an intellectual. We all know that. Uh, but it is it is a part like it is a part of it. So one of the things that we ask from our students, um, openness, humility, sympathy, um, uh, courage, uh, all of these things are uh, ways of moral growth and also of spiritual growth. And this, this particular, I try to communicate this in the book. I could probably do better with it. Um, there's a particular type of experience, which I think of as being a kind of high, something, the, the intellectual life's equivalent of high mysticism, where it, you, you see all the things you thought were true crumble. So you're in this state of aporia, uh, of confusion or perplexity. Um, and there's a sense of awe in it. It's not... Uh, it's not a sense of, oh, darn it, my, my view just got shattered. It's the sense that you're in the presence of something which is um, impervious to the human will um, and human effort and is bigger and grander than our little conceptions are. Um, and that, I think, is really something like... Uh, a mystical experience, you know, of the kind that someone like St. John of the Cross or, or someone like that would describe where, you know, you, you feel God's presence in the collapse of, of, um, the human goods, the human efforts, the human, uh, endeavors. So, uh, so skepticism, as you know, can lead to that experience, right? It can be a kind of path to mysticism. 
I think of Kierkegaard as someone who kind of uses reason against itself to to then position himself to take a leap of faith. But skepticism, for a lot of people, it seems, also can lead to a kind of nihilism or cynicism, you know, where... I'll give you one example, um, kind of. I think it's a great ambiguous example. So there's a, a teacher in the Talmud, Rebbe Meir, who could argue for and against any position in like 70 different ways. And this was something that made him a legal authority in at the highest level, but at the same time, somebody who is distrusted. Some, so um, Yehuda Hanasi, who is the codifier of the Mishnah, said that he would look at the back of this man and sort of he would experience all the wisdom that there was just from looking at his back. But in the same passage, which is in, I think, Erevine 13, in the Talmud for the Talmud listeners out there, um, it then says that we don't we don't apply anything that Rebbe Mayer says directly. So I think of this person as sort of, on the one hand, you could say a mystic, someone who transcended logic, <laughs> but at the same time, someone who's, in a sense, ability to play with logic almost as a game makes him untrustworthy. Because it's like, well, what do you actually believe, Rebbe Mayer? If, if it can be this or it could be this. So who are you? What do you, what's, what do you care about? What's at stake for you? you know, a debate champion who can who can argue compellingly for any position, in a sense, makes light of debate as a, as a good faith pa- passage to truth. So uh, once again, I want to appeal to directionality and, and motivation. So uh, I had a wonderful teacher in graduate school, um, one of my probably my main academic mentor, a man named Ian Mueller, who taught at the University of Chicago in the philosophy department for many years. And um, it, it, I was particularly lucky to have him teaching uh, basically the Neoplatonist tradition. So starting with Plato and Aristotle and some Neoplatonist commentators, Augustine, um, some of the Islamic philosophers, Maimonides, and finally Aquinas. And the thing that he really left, so, so, his style of teaching was to, he could destroy any interpretation of any text. Uh, so you'd come in having read your commentaries and he'd destroy the old fashioned interpretation. And then you'd get a look at the new interpretation that was meant to replace the old fashioned interpretation. Then he'd destroy that too. And then class would be over and you move on to the next passage. Um, so <laughs> this is really a formative experience. But he, and he, he, I remember him reading, there's a passage in Guide from the Reflex. I'm not going to get it exactly right. But uh, Maimonides says, um, my extreme predilection for the pursuit of the truth is shown by my not being able to find any proofs of these theses. I think it's in the uh, section about the eternity of the world. Um, so I, I, I remember hearing him read that out and thinking, oh my gosh, you know, Ian has just diagnosed himself his extreme predilection is shown by his failure to find proofs. So if you if you think about the the critical use of reason as motivated by love of the truth and by restlessness because you and and mistrust of oneself and lack of satisfaction with partial solutions, then I think skepticism doesn't look like uh, nihilistic. And I also think that's um, 
that's what Augustine describes in the Confessions. So he describes coming to a point where he just thinks reason's pointless, but his his predilection for the truth pushes him a bit further. So it 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 can't be a game, and it can't be um, a mode of competition. I can take down anyone. Uh, it has to be. It has to have a direction, uh, and then I think it's it's wholesome and good and and holy, um, and and isn't isn't you, you know isn't destructive in the way that you're describing. That description strikes me as quite iconoclastic, and I think it makes sense that you would diagnose this teacher as a Maimonidean in in the sense of Maimonides thought we cannot really say anything positive about God without doing God an injustice. And if we secularize that thesis, in a sense, we come to the same view of truth, that we cannot really say anything of truth. It's just truth is that which we, is is what remains after we've destroyed everything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that, that's, in, uh, that's in the Gorgias, actually. Truth is what survives the refutation. I love it. Uh, so that, that also, that sort of, reverence for truth as a negative kind of empty space that that strikes me as very much of a piece with your project of learning for its own sake and sort of that experience as being formative without having to truth have to be something propositional um but i am wondering since we live in the world of propositions is there any role then for philosophy to to give us conclusions or theses, or is philosophy more best understood as a methodology, perhaps even a destructive methodology, for seeing how all propositions are inadequate? Um, I'm reluctant to be too programmatic about that. Um, my inclination, and I mean that very literally, my inclination is always to emphasize the destructive aspect of reason. But it's also true that I am, by inclination, a contrarian, and what I what I tend to see around, I tend to act against what is going on around me, and what tends to be always going on around me is overconfidence in the powers of reason. So, uh, what would it be like if I were somehow put in a a, a school of thought where everyone thought that? reason was only good for undermining itself and pointing you to something beyond itself, probably I would start looking for things that reason could substantially teach us, and I might find them. I don't know. Um, so I, I, I don't have a... It, it, it's, again, it's more of an inclination than it is a developed philosophical view. Um, it's, 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 it's where I like to put pressure on myself and on others because I think it's a bit more rare than anything. It's, it's a bit more rare than the opposite. I mean, we're so enchanted with the idea of propositional truth. Uh, every environment I've ever been in, apart from Ian Mueller's classroom, was enchanted with that, and, and some St. John's classrooms. Um, but we, uh, I just, uh, I think I could spend the rest of my life putting all the pressure I wanted on it, and I would still not get to the point where I was in danger of, um, you know, really undermining reason as reasoning as a practice just because the other the other position is so strong and so automatic this is a two-part question but do you think of socrates as primarily a contrarian and thus whatever else we can say about socrates is really just downstream of that temperament and i guess the second question is do you what is your most contrarian position on socrates the figure 
<laughs> That's hard. Everyone has a contrarian position on Socrates the figure. It's a little overpopulated with contrarian views. Uh, Maybe that's the contrarian view. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's, we, and I'm going to say something a bit cliched. We have to remember that our Socrates is, is Plato's Socrates. Uh, we don't know who Socrates was. We have this figure, Plato Socrates. And um, I think that Plato is clearly um, trying to, trying to and successfully inventing the practice of philosophy as we know it. And he does that with Socrates. And Socrates is on the one hand, right? Of course, the contrarian, like he can, he, he can see through every argument. He can see through every view. He can, uh, he's, but on the other hand, he has, again, he has a direction. Um, he, he points to something and his way of talking points to something beyond, beyond um, the specific questions of the argument or the specific paths of the argument. You know, there's, it, of course, Plato being a literary genius does it with images. So there's the, the sun and the line in the cave and there's um, him standing at the doorway of Agathon's dinner party in the symposium, lost in thought. Um, so, uh, there's a sense in which he's he, he's he's presented as confident that there's something more, and he's also presented as someone whose life is extremely someone he took, he took his life very seriously, right? So there's there's never a in Plato Socrates there's never a moment where Socrates just does something uh, that without purpose. Um, so it's, that's, that's all very important for philosophy. It's all very fundamental. I, I don't know if I have a uniquely contrarian view about him. Uh, I just, yeah, but that's, that's how I think about Socrates and, and his, his, his role as a kind of founding model of the kind of thinking I'm talking about. Would you say the idea of sort of being a skeptic in conversation, but then believing in something more or having a sense of seriousness is a is a kind of irony is that is that can we describe that as socratic irony in the sort of attitudinal sense yeah i don't know i don't know i don't understand irony well enough um there's something hilarious in a certain way about the fact that socrates plato socrates founds um Three, at least three or four philosophical schools, all of which have dramatic tensions with one another. So, you know, Plato's Academy is first skeptical, and then it's a bunch of Stoics who are totally anti-skeptical, and then you have this Neoplatonism, which is somehow in between skepticism and Stoicism, and you have Aristotelianism, which is emphasizing something different. It's all it's all Platonism. How did that happen? Um, how could it be that one figure, Plato, Socrates? is the founder for all the different schools. That's a kind of joke on philosophy, I think. But uh, whether it's, whether it's uh, ironic, I, I'm not confident. I don't, I don't have enough of a sense of what irony really means and how it works. I think one classical view of irony is just saying one thing and meaning another. But then, and then there's, of course, dramatic irony, which is playing with people's expectations and doing something surprising and sort of the, the most 
dramatically ironic would be when you surprise yourself. So <laughs> it's sort of like the, uh, you know, the shlemiel spilling the soup is a kind of dramatic irony. And I, then in postmodernism, I, I see kind of thinkers like Derrida and Daman, for better and for worse, trying to gesture at the idea that language itself is irony, that I guess they get this from Schlegel, but that it's not so much that we want to say one thing and or w that we say one thing and mean another, but just that one can't but not say what one means because language itself has this sort of schlemiel, schlemazel uh, aspect to it. So that's that's how I think of irony. But maybe just to kind of bring some other things into the conversation on on Socrates and, and philosophy, how do you relate to the fact that Plato is a literary genius? How do you relate to you know Augustine, whom you mentioned before, being not just a tremendous mind and thinker, but really somebody who for whom the style and the rhetoric is a deep seated feature of the thought? Um, does it does does style have philosophical content or what 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 is your own kind of way of navigating the the rhetorical strategies of these thinkers in relationship to let's say the pure philosophy if we could even make such a distinction <laughs> <laughs> right so i I'm going to be once again uh, relentlessly uh, and naively earnest and say i I think it um I think there's something in it that points to a possibility of full human development and in a, a kind of human integration of thought and feeling and um, passion and uh, community and uh, mystical union. And I, I, I'm reminded of that last night I was uh, teaching um, with, I was reading with my students, uh, Nicomachean ethics, um, and we were talking about pleasure and the role that pleasure takes in virtue rights, this classic issue. Why does it really matter if you do the right thing, whether you enjoy it or not? <laughs> what difference does it make? Um, and, um, and you know, why does it make a difference for that matter, whether you do the right thing deliberately as opposed to accidentally? And then I, I started to get this image of just the the participation of the parts of a human being in the act, right? There's, there's just more going on if you're doing it deliberately, and there's more going on if you enjoy it and relish it and, um, and contemplate it. And I think that's what that's that's what both Plato and Augustine are aiming for. They're they're aiming for a, a kind of aspirational vision of, um human integration, the fulfillment of human desire. And, and you can, I think you can take that. I, I take that in full naive earnestness. Um, you can also take it as a, as a kind of a, a, a useful fantasy if you'd like. Uh, but I, I prefer not to, I prefer to just take it seriously and think that there is in some sense, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a longing of the heart for um, the, an end to the, all of the conflict between our faculties and, uh, and a, kind of, a kind of complete happiness and satisfaction. And, you know, I, I believe that, that that longing is in some way somehow satisfied. Um, and it, even if it isn't, it's worth knowing about. So, uh. I love the idea that the sort of 
literary tricks or stylistic flourishes point to something more, uh, that's very beautiful. And I, whether or not it's correct, it's it's a good uh, if it, it allows us to feel that way. I'm I'm happy enough. <laughs> <laughs> There's this thing in the, Socrates says in the Mina, right? This is the kind of a, you know, uh, well, I don't know whether knowledge is recollection, but it would make us braver and less idle if we believed it. You know, it's a little like, <laughs> that's what you sound like right exactly. now. Exactly. So um, in, in the Jewish tradition, there's a distinction between the written Torah and the oral Torah. The oral Torah being traditionally understood of as really the the lived dialogue around the text um, that's experienced in the moment that that gets reworked through history and then eventually it's it's written down in the form of the Talmud but then um, oral Torah continues sort of in the Beit Midrash, the house of study as the way in which people connect the text to their lives in contradistinction from just the text itself and so I thought of that distinction between written Torah and oral Torah when you were talking that Kind of these are texts, but they are texts that possibly deploy a strategy of reminding us that reading uh, isn't, you know, it's not enough unless it's connected to kind of the context in which you're applying that. And that would obviously make sense given Plato's dialogue on the, the Phaedrus, which is very much <laughs> concerned with the problem of how do you write and uh, a, a written text that concludes that writing is bad, obviously is going to have to struggle with this question of codification and vitality. I think that it really connects to truthfully almost everything we've been talking about because the, the written word or the, the disintegration between uh, reason and our other faculties is surely part of the explanation of why... Um, Intellectual life has these uh, grotesque corruptions in the 20th century that George Steiner is so interested in. It's the reason why um, we can be have incredibly intelligent people that um, waste their lives in producing uh, volumes of nonsense. So it, it it isn't just a beautiful dream, right? It's it's. Um, it's part of what I judge to be necessary as uh, a way to understand how the intellect can can be good, as opposed to just some some neutral tool like a hammer that can be used to you know to to murder or to build, right? Um, so I, I there's something profound there. Uh, I don't think I'd ever seen it quite like that before, but. Um, that's it's why it's a very important that philosophy be integrated and reasoning be integrated with other other human capacities for that reason there's another jewish saying that um it's from pure about the sayings of the ancestors that a person can or should do something not for its own sake because eventually by doing it one will come to do it for its own sake and I'm wondering what you think of incentives as a as a tool for getting people to a place of non-instrumentality. <laughs> how do we how do we shape culture to given where it is to get more people to kind of transform themselves into 
more holistic creatures who aren't just driven by, let's say, prestige competition or, you know, the various things that, that people think they want, but that don't, that don't speak to the entirety of human flourishing. Right. So I, I only, I don't have grand answers for this. Um, I have only local, local experience. I mean, this is the, the wisdom of the ages, right? This is what wisdom is for is figuring out how to build culture in ways that help people be good rather than bad. Right. So this is, this is the political art if they're, you know, and, and I, I, one of the things that's discouraging about the current climate is that you don't hear a lot of it. Um, you don't hear a lot of awareness of it. People talk as if ideas function in a vacuum um, and they don't, or persuasion is sufficient and it's not. So um, one of the reasons why I, I, I love St. John's College and why I returned there and what, why I went there initially, why I returned there and why I'm committed to staying um, is that this kind of culture has been developed. So for instance, um, it's, it's, it's what kinds of incentives are you offering? Grades are very, very bad incentives to instill learning for its own sake. They're incentives which break free very easily from their content. Whereas social incentives, being a part of a small community where there's, a, there's an expectation and if, if you don't meet it, you look funny. That's a very, very powerful type of incentive. Um, and it goes very deep. So if you're in a little, a little environment like St. John's where people don't use devices in class, they, they have books, um, they do their reading and they talk about it, um, then that's going to be what you're inclined to do. Uh, so... I don't know how to generalize that in a way that's interesting. I mean, of course, the Catherine Project, right, is some kind of attempt to make an intervention in this respect. So what, it's not so much providing incentives as removing incentives. Um, so what does intellectual life look like when you strip away the credits, the grades, the tuition, the uh, social networking, largely, not entirely, but largely, uh, wh what do you get? And, and maybe you get what you find satisfying and good. Uh, so I don't know. I feel like I'm going in three or four different directions, but you can come back to me and ask another question and maybe it'll help me. Yeah, so I was, I was listening to you talk to Russ Roberts on EconTalk, a uh, great conversation. And at one point I laughed out loud because he said something like, sort of, what do you tell listeners who say something to the effect of like, flourishing sounds great, but you know what sounds better? Prosperity. <laughs> Um, and, you know, as a rabbi, as a, as a kind of community leader who has staked out a life where I'm not just trying to say what I think is true, but also trying to accompany people given their givens, uh, which I guess is a kind of, not to, not to put myself on a pedestal in any way, but it's a kind of archetypal feature of biblical prophecy where you're not just, you know, the job of the prophet is not just to say what God thinks, but also to relate, be relatable. So I guess that's kind of the question is, I totally co-sign the lost in thought uh, pitch, if you will. Sorry for, for the crass term. I, I, it, 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 I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with all of it. 
and I would like to get more people to to live a life of the mind. And I think doing just being an example is a great way to do it. But I also think about many people who wouldn't even have the entry point and sort of just when you think of the 7 billion people on the face of the earth, maybe localism is enough, but I guess I'm just thinking about where at the margin one can have an impact beyond just those who are already sort of close enough in spirit to us. That's where the question is coming from, maybe. I'm haunted by this question myself. So I I worry that my work is only harvesting the low-hanging fruit. And while that might be worthwhile, it's not um, going to do the work that needs to be done to to get into the f- the further reaches of the people who um, aren't uh, are higher up on the branches. <laughs> so I I'm haunted by the question. I share the worry. Um, I also think that there's got to be a flaw in our thinking here to some extent. We're so accustomed. To thinking about a problems as soluble, b problems as globally soluble. Like there's a there's a little solution, you know, sort of the TED Talk mentality. You know, here's this problem, and here's this one quick fix that will solve it. And that's just not the kind of thing it is, right? It's culture. It doesn't work like that. So you know, I um. I think it it does honestly just travel person by person. If if that's really true, then we have to have confidence that um, the people with whom we have contact, with whom the example is transmitted, however imperfectly through our own example, uh, those people will in turn take it in and have impact on other people, just as people had impact on us. So how far it reaches is not really, it's just not really up to us. Uh, it's just not something that's in our control. So I, I don't, I don't think there's a magic word that I could say a magic way of connecting flourishing with prosperity that would solve the problem. I don't think the problem is, is susceptible to being solved that way. So I, I don't know what else to do apart from talk to anyone who will listen in the most straightforward way possible. And um, and try to try to actually, as best I can, live out the kinds of things I'm saying, uh, and hope that no one notices all my failures, and uh, you know, hope that those aren't the thing that has the impact, but rather the the ideals I'm trying to trying to point to. One rhetorical strategy that I use, and I also believe in it. It's not just a rhetorical strategy. It's slightly different from the argument, "Hey, learning is a human good." And more an argument from context, like this may not be the highest priority, but the fact that it's a kind of endangered species makes it worth trying to save, maybe not for mass culture, but just, you know, we we believe in having, in, in saving indigenous peoples, and this is a kind of indigeneity that that matters. So the metaphor that I go to from the Hebrew Bible is the Eitz HaSadeh, the tree of the field, that you're not allowed to chop down when you conquer foreign territory. So it's sort of, in a sense, taking inevitable the conquest, the 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 modernization, and not it's not trying to resist the forces of culture 
that have made intellectual life kind of marginal. But just saying, you know, let's let's leave some trees up. What what do you think of that as a kind of compromise tactic? Is that conceding too much? Is it is it effective? No, I think that's I I make a similar move. I make a a sort of conditional move. It's something like maybe we can reverse these trends. Who knows? Uh, I don't I don't believe that history has history doesn't have a direction. I don't think necessarily. So I don't think that we're inevitably locked into any particular mode. I mean, it looks that way sometimes, but I don't know if that's really true. Um, so maybe things can can turn around in, in a more dramatic way, but even if they don't, that's how I usually put it, even if it doesn't, it's worth passing on as a, yeah, as a, um, as a, it's folkways, uh, right? It's, um, it's, here are these practices which, even if we can keep them alive in some corner of the world or a few corners of the world, it's better than them not being alive. And then, um, you know, who knows what will happen with those seeds in the future, whether there'll be a, a more hospitable environment later on in which they can they can make their way out. So I, I'm definitely open to that. I mean, I, uh, I, I do try to be... Um, it's hard. It's a stretch, right? You want to be both uh, idealistic. You want to... Uh, imagine, reimagine the world boldly, but you also want to be in touch with reality. So how do you do that? Uh, I don't know. You kind of make stuff up all the time, like I do and you do, uh, maybe. Um, yeah. One group that I think does at least rhetorically take learning as an end of itself are Haredi Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews. Um, they devote a lot of attention and resources to learning. It's basically normative that every man should spend years in yeshiva. And in Israel, that has created some tensions uh, with a non-Haredi population, which sees itself as having to support that burden economically, while in exchange they say that culture doesn't contribute its share, uh, either in military service or economic activity, etc. Of course, one can also give the the criticism that it's only the men who get to do the learning and so on and so forth. But I'm just wondering kind of if that's an extreme, an extreme of learning for its own sake and one that is in a sense a success, a success of lost in thought scaling. What, I don't know, just like what do you make of that phenomenon and said differently, is there a point at which you would actually not write the book Lost in Thought, but maybe make the countervailing argument that we're too lost in thought? I know we're not there as a whole, but um, (laughs) where do you think the equilibrium might be? I don't know if there's a principled point of equilibrium. Uh, So, you know, I, I, I think if uh, we were faced with a practical situation of dramatic urgency. Now, this would be a personal judgment. I don't think a collective judgment, to be honest. Um, then, yeah, you, you know, you you have to. I mean, I think people do this anyway, right? You you know you, um, and it's something that particularly women intellectuals have to deal with, right? So you, you know, you you're at home with your kids for ten years. Uh, you're probably not 
developing your intellect to its fullest extent during that time. You might just be barely keeping the light burning. Um, and that's a necessity, something else you have to do. Uh, so I don't, I don't think there's anything principled about that. I think it has to be discerned sort of case by case. I, I don't, I, I really don't buy this, um, this way of thinking about, oh, you know, you're using public resources, you've got to justify the public resources. And I think I don't really buy it because, maybe partly because what I see is an astonishing waste always and everywhere of public resources for all kinds of things. I mean, I don't know why we're spending billions of dollars on profitable enterprises, for instance. Like, why is that a public resource? Uh, why don't we let these profitable enterprises uh, sink or swim on their own? Um, or, um, but also things, I, I think that a, a, a political community needs to support the highest, ex, the highest developments of human beings. And it does that through the support of the arts. It does that through support of intellectual life. It does it through support of uh, religion when, when the, the religion is um, established like it is in Israel. And uh, th that's how things are supposed to be. That's what, that's what a political community is for. There's not some, um, uh, you know, some neutral way, neutral set of resources, which we then decide to use, have to justify its use for something, anything that's not practical. That's not the, I don't think that's the way that politics really works. And I don't think that's the way it works. I don't think anyone's really applying those principles consistently anyway, to the extent that they do believe them. So I, I'm, I'm very unapologetic about thinking that, uh, and I, I take refuge too in, in Adam Smith, right? Who, um, who also thought this, that public resources and excess resources, that is the, the excess wealth of, of the wealthy, um, they belong to support things that don't survive in the market. And that's, that's all of the fullest things that make us really human and make human life worthwhile. And, and it's really the other thing that needs justification. It's like, why are we, uh, you know, how much, how, mu how much economic activity do we need to sustain human beings as in their, in their best forms? Maybe not as much as we have. Maybe there's different ways of imagining our economies. So there's a bit of a, I'm happy to reverse the, the, um, the burden of explanation on, um, yeah, well, what's the point of, what's the point of all the stuff that you're doing? What's the point of the uh, what's the point of the uh, incredibly expensive American war machine? Um, I, I, that's not obvious. So why are you asking me to justify the the, the ten million dollars that the National Endowment for the Humanities takes over the the fifty trillion dollars that the defense industry spends? It doesn't make any sense to me. So yeah, I don't. Would you would you feel the same way if you weren't a religious person? I know that's kind of an impossible question to ask, but how how much of your sort of confidence in this is the good life comes from a kind of faithful experience versus from a kind of, I guess you could call it a pared down rational perception. It's a bit tricky, right? Um, in my experience, there's a lot of things because my intellectual development in a way mirrored <laughs> the intellectual development of Christianity, because I, I spent my youth in classical philosophy, right? And 
that's a classical philosophical view, right? That politics is for human flourishing uh, at its highest levels. And um, maybe I wouldn't have had the, where a lot of my experience has, the way it's, a lot of it's worked is, I, I might not have had the guts to commit myself to that before I was religious. Uh, I, I would have felt very much constrained by what a respectable secular academic had to think, which was definitely not perfectionist in that sense, political perfectionism. I'm thinking that, that politics is for human flourishing. You know, it would have to be some kind of liberalism. And I, and I do, at this point, also believe in some kind of liberalism. Just I just don't think it's fundamental that way. So I think, for me, faith and religion has been a lot of times been uh, like a, a support, a, a way of uh, source of leverage against conventional wisdom in order for me to actually uh, advocate for things that I might have believed were true if I weren't under so much pressure to the contrary. That's the way a lot of religious, moral, and political thinking has worked for me. I, I probably thought that before. I might have been persuaded before, but I didn't have the, it was too socially challenging to do it. And because I have an alternate community, I'm able to, to think more freely and advocate more freely. So for me, it's been, honestly, for that reason, um, becoming a person of faith has been enormously liberating intellectually. Because I'm no longer, I found the constraints of secular academia to be extremely tight. Um, and I no longer feel bound by them. Um. There's a tendency in philosophers to try to understand the origins of philosophy itself, um, whether philosophy begins in wonder, as uh, Plato suggests, right? Is it Plato? Um, or in Heidegger's telling, uh, philosophy begins in crisis. And I'm wondering if you have a... a anecdote to share or or a theory um, of how philosophy began for you? Do you have a moment in which you sort of awaken to philosophy? Yes, I, I think I do. Um, now, at this point, I've told the story a few times, so I, I run the risk of having um, it, it may be replacing my ability to remember other moments that might be equally plausible. But anyway, this is the one that I'm I'm using now, <laughs> whether or not it's really true or not. It's always hard to know your st- storytelling does obscure as well as clarify, right? Um, the story is this: I um, I grew up in a very uh, political environment, very activist, leftist environment. Um, and so no one was religious. Uh, none of my grandparents, none of my parents, none of my aunts and uncles, literally no one in my family, uh, had any kind of conventional religion. Um, and, but they were very interested in politics. So politics was kind of the religion substitute. People really cared about it. There was this grand battle between good and evil going on all the time that we, you know, had the privilege to be a part of and, and to be able to intervene in. And uh, I became a teenager and started to develop some kind of visceral disquiet. It felt too automatic. The conclusions felt too automatic and too forced. And I was taking 
U.S. history as a junior in high school. And our, our teacher, we were studying the American Civil War, and our teacher gave us readings from George Fitzhugh, who is uh, American uh, slavery advocate in just at the time of the Civil War and just prior. Uh, and he makes this argument that um, the factory workers of the North are, are wage slaves in much worse conditions than, than the enslaved peoples of the South, who at least are taken care of from, from birth to death, taken care of in some, in some sense. And it's, it's, it's very, it was very well written. It was very cogent. It was, uh, had arguments. Um, and I was just astonished and convicted uh, that my moral views, my sense of what was right and what was wrong was incredibly contingent. And that had I been grown up in that environment, um, I would have believed what he believed. And that reasoning, reasoning was powerless to, uh, to determine whether I ended up on one side or the other. And uh, so I didn't, so that, that was a moment where I think I really became interested in philosophy because then it became really important to me to try to see what the foundations of moral life were. And so I went through all the classic phases, you know, the relativism and skepticism. Um, and then, uh, you know, I have now I'm working it out as an adult in some way as, okay, well, just as I was saying at the beginning of the conversation, um, we have no control over our moral condition, as important as it is. So I, I, I think that that was, that was my formative philosophical moment. It was uh, a moment of profound doubt about my access to foundations for the values by which I lived. Uh, and by which everyone I knew lived. Uh, th that was what did it. Is that something that you think could work or would work pedagogically for others? Or do you think that's more specific to you or a certain kind of person? You know, I, I, my fear, I'll just tell you my fear, is that it, it was um, enabled by the particular political intellectual culture of the moment in which I grew up. So I grew up, I was born in the 1970s. That's uh, World War II was a living memory. And a lot of the American intellectual world and educational world was really preoccupied with this question of, um, uh, you know, would we have been Nazis? That was kind of a fun, that, that was a, a motivating question of, uh, a lot of the discourse that I re that I remember growing up, and part of the environment I grew up in growing up. So I think I was able to to I was able to draw on that from the broader culture, and that's not that's not around anymore. Uh, so the the young people, my students, they don't they don't have that that haunt. They're not haunted by the war. Um, they don't really. The war is really not living memory for them. Their grandparents would were wouldn't have remembered it in person. Um, and there isn't anything equivalent. And what, what they've received really instead is um, a kind of heavy 
sugary diet of, of moral certainty uh, of one kind or another. I'm not just talking about the progressive left. I think it's also true on the right. Um, and uh, I find it very disturbing. So, so one of the things I struggle with is um, I received my own call to philosophy through cultural means, which seem to be no longer be available. So uh, what are we going to do? <laughs> so I, it's, that's a question I have. I don't know how to answer it. I'm doing my best, uh, but it's, uh, I, I don't think I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that experience is something which is as common in, in these young people as it was for people my age. Okay. But you also grew up in a context of moral certainty and, and rebelled against that in some sense. So your contrarianism was, uh, you know, also animating that, no? It, yeah, but it was different because first of all, it was a, uh, it was a very countercultural moral certainty. It was very marginal. Part of what I've seen over the course of my life is the weird microculture that I grew up in, which was the Bay Area in the 1970s, becoming a kind of global monoculture, <laughs> which is very strange. It's a very strange thing to watch. You know, I sort of fled to the East Coast once I realized I wanted to do something different, and then it started to follow me there, you know. Um, so I've been I've been running from it my whole life, and I, I haven't succeeded in escaping so it. So Bloomingdale's should put um, a trigger warning on, on its entrance, you know, uh, that, that you're you're going to be revisiting your family dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, anyway, uh, I, I don't, so I I think it's going to have to be different for the young people, and I I I take comfort in the fact that no one managed my development. Um, I, I, you know, the, my teacher, my high school teacher, he, he didn't know he was going to do that. I think he thought it would be interesting to read it. Um, and we were also reading Howard's Inn and we were reading all kinds of stuff. Uh, it was a, a more pluralistic, uh, environment, even though it was progressive. So, um, yeah, I, uh, God's in charge, you know, so he'll find a way to bring people to, um, the kind of uncertainty or or to the kind of attractions which which might break them out of of conventional modes um, but i i, I can 't i can 't offer I, I I can talk about my experience and hope it resonates but i i don 't know that it 's being repeated anymore well, I appreciate the introspection and and honesty there, and I think god 's in charge is a good way. A good ambiguous note on which to end uh, for you know for the believers and the non-believers out there. I I, I hope you're um, you're moved in some way by that sentiment. You know whether for the for the affirmative or for the provocation. And thank you, Zena, so much for your time and insight. Thanks so much, Sohar. It was a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for your wonderful wonderful questions and and for all that you do in uh, public intellectual world. Thank you. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. 
Thank you for listening and see you next time.